Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Today, today is January 24th, and today on Current Events and Christian Expectations, we're going to be talking about part two of our Christian responsibility in a democracy. Our primary scripture reference today is going to be 1 John 2.17. We're going to have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the comments section. But with 1 John 2.17 as our primary backdrop, let's just dig right in. So Jim, what does 1 John 2.17 tell us? It tells us this, reading from the English Standard Version, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John says the world is passing away. It's already on the way out. He says this in view of the Christ event, the crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement of Jesus in heaven, his soon return to judge the living and the dead. This world is already on its way out, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Today's current event we're looking at is the 117th Congress, which was sworn in to their congressional seats uh, this January. The Christian expectation, in view of what we just read from 1 John 2.17, is how should we live regarding the politics of this age, this time, this current event, in view of this truth that the world is passing away. The world would encompass the smaller world of politics. And so, how do we understand this? Should Christians be in politics? By that we mean formal. You get elected to an office. Uh, or informal. You get appointed. Or maybe you're an advisor. Uh, maybe you're a formal advisor. Informal. The question really should be, how, if he or she is going to be a Christian in politics, how should a Christian be in politics? What is our calling? What is the Christian expectation. To give some background on this, here are some statistics from the Pew Research Center. It is a 501c3 nonpartisan organization, and they just do research on facts. They do not make policy statements on the left side or on the right side of the political aisles. Here's what they say about the 117th Congress. 88% of people coming into Congress say they are Christian. They belong to either a Christian church individually or to denomination. That's a high percentage. In the general population, only 65% of people profess to be Christian. It would seem that now all our problems are solved. All of our problems are, they're all solved. And uh, I've dealt with this over the years trying to explain to people. And I say, we need more Christians in government that that was not the answer. And it's really upside down as to what the Bible teaches as I understand it. Interesting, 99% of Republicans said that they are Christian. In 1961, the first time these kind of stats were kept, 95% of the then 87th Congress coming in said that they were Christians. Now, look at that. From 1961 to 2021, there's been very little change from the people in Congress, House and Senate, who are confessing to be Christians, about a seven or eight point change. But the culture from 1961 to today has really changed as everyone can testify to. So what's going on? So Christians have predominated Congress at a minimum since 1961. 
on an 80 plus percentile basis. Right. Um, and probably more than that prior to even it was started to be recorded. So right. 80 plus percentile for 50 years, 60 years. And now suddenly um, everything is solved. We, we've <laughs> <laughs> yes. If your belief is we need more Christians in Congress, we can squeeze a few more, but we're pretty filled up with Christians. So, of course, somebody will say, well, they're not my kind of Christian. Well, my response to that is, do we in the church, let's just say over the last 500 years since the Reformation, how have we done with unity and getting along and getting the work of the church done? Okay, I think you know the answer to that question. So let's begin this by, number one, what is the priority of the Christian life as to politics? And we'll look at it from the perspective of 1 John 2.17 and other verses that form a pattern of truth. That the world is passing away. That our priorities are not set by this world, by the governments, or by the ideologies of this world. We've all heard this expression. We've got to be in the world, but not of it. Now, the Bible expresses that a little more strongly. Um, we should be in it, but be detached. But here are some verses that are really back up 1 John 2.17, that tell us about the detachment we should have to the world. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. And then we go on to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31, and it says this, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, the first... Um passage that Randy read from 1 Corinthians 2.6 is about the rulers. Uh, elsewhere in this uh, passage, he talks about if they'd known that Christ was the Lord of glory, they would not have crucified him. But governments normally do not orient themselves toward Christian truth, so we understand that. Uh, ESV says they are doomed to be gone. Other uh, translations say they too are passing away. They are on the way out. In other words, the governments of this world are soon to come to an end. In chapter 7, and if you have time, I encourage you to read the entire chapter. It's interesting. Paul, in that section that Randy read, verses 29-31, is about marriage or not to have marriage, how, how to do that. And Paul is saying if you don't have to get married, don't get married because the time is short and you can spend more time serving the Lord. But then he goes on and gives that bigger explanation. He said, as we are in this world, but not of it. Therefore, we've got to be detached from it. Notice how he emphasizes the detachment that we um, can rejoice, but not as those who are, spend our whole time rejoicing as if that's the point of life, and so forth and so on. It's very interesting how he phrases all that. Then it ends up again by saying, because this present order, this world we live in, is passing away. Same thing John says in his passage. And also, in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, uh, Peter says that... We need to be sober, and uh, we need to be self-controlled because the end of all things is at hand. When we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, which is the last chapter in the entire Bible, 
Three times Jesus says, I am coming soon in that last chapter. And of course it ends with the explanation of um, John to all this. Even so, come, come Lord Jesus, come. So three times he says this, he's coming soon. Now I know what you're thinking. It's been, what, 2,000 years? It's been a bit of time. And most yeah. people's understanding of soon would not fit into that long chronology. But we're not looking at chronological time, we're looking at prophetic time. In other words, when John says the world is passing away, when Paul says the world with its rulers is passing away and we need to act as people who are not totally absorbed by the world, we need to be loose to it so we'll be ready, that is prophetic time. It's based upon the thing of Jesus being already crucified, risen, ascended in heaven and soon to return and therefore it's all about prophetic timing. We should reckon it to be so or count it to be so by faith that the world is passing away. And if we believe that, our behavior changes as opposed to believing the world's always going to be here. Hmm. There's a difference. And James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through trials and tribulations because the testing of your faith brings steadfastness. When he says count it as joy, he means, of course, you're not having joy when you're going through trials, tribulations. Mm -hmm. But you should reckon it to be so, meaning the end result will be joy, because you will learn how to be steadfast for the Lord. There's a tremendous amount of hope in those scriptures, too, when you're going through a trial. Right, right, exactly. And that means that all these scriptures we just read are geared toward the future. We view the present world in view of the future. The world is passing away. How do we know? Because Jesus is coming back and he's already done the first event of salvation and the cross and resurrection. He will confirm it when he returns. And so this world is not long, prophetically speaking. It's going away. So we got to be in the world, but not of it accordingly. Though that's a priority then, to reckon that this world is not our home, that this world is passing away. That means the politics of this world, the rulers are passing away. Mm. We've got to view that first and foremost, whatever else we do, that has to be the top priority in how we understand our faith. The next big priority is our citizenship, which is in heaven. And Randy's gonna read us a verse from Philippians chapter three. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject all things to himself. Okay, thank you, Randy. Notice, first of all, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's writing to Philippi, which is a Roman colony, so they understood the, uh, the good of Roman citizenship. But Paul makes very bold to say, our citizenship is in heaven. Once again, our matter of faith should be geared toward heaven and toward Jesus who is returning. We just said that this world's passing away in view of Jesus' already accomplished work on the cross and resurrection, and he's returning soon. That's a prophetic time. And so we need to be concentrating upon where our citizenship is. It's in heaven, and it will be confirmed when Jesus returns. The confirmation is something that government can never give anybody else, and that's immortality. He will change our bodies to be like his glorious body, and since I'm now 76, I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that. You know, when you're young, you do weightlifting, you think your body's glorious. <laughs> ah, if you live long enough, you realize, boy, that passed away real fast too, didn't it? So our citizenship is in heaven. The question is, in America, 
Sometimes we Christians spend more time worried about our citizenship here and about our rights here and about how we need to have this and that and etc. When we should be concentrating more on the citizenship that is in heaven. I hear it seems a lot of times we, we consider ourselves American Christians instead of Christians who live in America. Yes, yes. I guess the first thing to ask is are we Americans first and then Christians or are we Christians first and then Americans? And that's unfortunately, I think, answered the wrong way by too many people. Hmm. Here are some people who were involved in politics. They're well known. And let me give you some quotes that they have. One is from Billy Graham. In 2011, I think he was up in his 90s at that point, uh, he gave an interview to Christianity Today in 2011. And he was asked a question about his ministry. Do you have any regrets? And he speaks about two. One is, he said, I regret that I didn't spend more time with my family because he spent a lot of time evangelizing on the road. Mm. The other thing he said is, today I would have steered clear of politics. Sometimes I cross the line. He would not be involved in, how was he involved in politics? With Those of us who lived through the Nixon administration realize this. No, it, he was an informal advisor to Richard Nixon. Yeah, I saw lots of pictures, black and white pictures of him sitting in the Oval Office with Nixon. Yes, yeah. yes. And he realized later, had he listened to his wife, he wouldn't have had this problem. <laughs> that's she, for another podcast. That's for another podcast. Because <laughs> she, she was very vocal on this. Um, he realized later that uh, he had no business there, none at all, and mm -hmm. it had compromised his witness. And we won't go in. You can look it up online if you want to see all the ways in which it was. But he said, I would now steer clear of politics. He was an informal advisor to a Nixon, and now he regrets that. Charles Colson was, of course, with the Nixon administration, and uh, he ended up going to prison through that Watergate, Watergate affair and all that happened there, and became a Christian. He wrote a book, Born Again, which uh, he explained how his conversion happened, and then began a Christian ministry of service in many areas of uh, our culture, and um, wrote lots of books. Here is one of his quotes, again, from a man who is deeply involved in politics. Christians should never have a political party. It is a huge mistake to be married to an ideology. And of course, that is what political parties have to be. They have to be an ideology. I don't think he's saying here you can't vote. What he's saying is don't be wedded to a political party because once that happens, it will shape your mind and it will diminish your witness as a Christian. Well, I, I know there are numerous Christians that I know that are Republicans, and, and they'll, they'll tend to only vote Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, they, they also feel that are those that vote Democrat are maybe less of a Christian <laughs> because they vote for Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So there are two very famous people uh, in the last generation in American uh, culture who have been involved in politics. Both, one was a Christian already, the other became a Christian. Mm. So in the mouths of two or three witnesses, you have a good uh, combination there of their perspective. Um, and mentioning that, what is this perspective of the Christian life? Well, here it is. We are not looking for a utopia. So mm. often if you hear politics and politicians speak, it's about things that are utopian in nature. And that's always a bad place to start. We can always improve our country, but people want to have a vision of how the American dream should be shaped and lived out.
politically. In the New Testament, you don't see the church leveraging politics to fix things. No, nor is there, to my knowledge, any places where we're told, at least in Paul's time, get involved with the Roman Empire government and be your good witness there. So, uh, if you're interested in some of these, there's the Black Book of Communism, which is printed, interestingly enough, by Harvard University Press. Uh, this is from the 1999 edition about the millions of people in the 20th century who died under governments totalitarian who were utopian in nature. They were going to build the city of God on earth. Mm. At least, we know, at least, maybe probably is more, 65 million people died in China in the 20th century and starting their communist government there. In the Soviet Union, we know at least 20 million, that's 85 million people in the 20th century. That's not mentioning the war with the Nazis, the totalitarian governments of Vietnam, Cambodia, and many other places. What we are looking for is no city on earth. Cain built the first city with his son that he had, and of course, we all know the kind of person Cain was. We're looking for the city to come and we find this in Hebrews chapter 11. Randy's going to read us about Abraham and the city to come. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We jump down to verses 15 and 16. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for them a city. So our minds and hearts should be geared on the city to come, which prepares us for the city that he has prepared. If we spend all of our money and resources trying to build the city on earth politically, and that's the only way you can do it, what are we doing? Where should our resources be going, our time, our money, our energy? Those things that show us that we do believe the world is passing away and that there is a better world coming. It is our behavior, as we shall see, which is the salt of the world. You know, it's interesting if you go back to the Old Testament when mankind tried to build for themselves a city mm -hmm. and a tower. Mm -hmm. It did not meet with favor from God. Correct. Tower of Babel, and it was destroyed. And that's why we all speak different languages. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Hebrews 13 verses 12 through 14, says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Yes, they went outside the gate. Jerusalem there represents the world. They, they're outside the world, outside the gate, bearing the disgrace and the sharing the rejection of Jesus because we're not looking for that city. We're looking for the city to come that God has built. Therefore, as we come to the next thing about our perspective on the Christian life, what should we be seeing? How should we behave ourselves? We must not be naive. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus sends his disciples out, and what he says to them, I'm sure applies to all disciples for all the 2,000 years to follow, he says, be wise as serpents and harmless mm -hmm. as doves. Behold, I am sending you as sheep among wolves. He goes on to explain the wolves will at times eat them, take them, 
persecute them and they will die and so forth. But be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We are people who are harmless, who are blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth, we'll not, don't believe in political violence. But we must be wise as to the ways of the world and how people are bent and how they are consumed by politics. I once wrote an article called The Perverse Shepherd, where I said, what kind of shepherd is it that would send sheep to wolves? I said, well, Jesus. Jesus is that shepherd because we're going into the world, but we can't be of the world, and therefore there's going to be a collision. Hmm. So we must not be naive. We must remember that the influence of Satan is pervasive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it's because the God of this age has blinded the unbelievers. He's mm. called the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air, who works in the children of disobedience. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John says, the whole world lies in the embrace of the evil one. And he has control over the nations. He he offered Jesus in his temptation. That's right. In fact, yeah. we're going to come to that just in a second. Just remember, he's a deceiver. In Revelation chapter 12, and this is not the only time it's mentioned in Revelation, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. Mm. Okay. Now, Randy mentioned, and this is the, the, the topping on the cake. In Luke chapter 4, the temptation that is offered there, there's three last final temptations. Brain is going to read this passage. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, it says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is extraordinary, because... Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. And what we have in Matthew and Luke are the last final big three temptations. And both Matthew and Luke record this temptation to be given the kingdoms and all their political power that is in the world. And it's interesting, in Luke's presentation, it's visionary. In a moment of time, he takes them on a high place and shows him the vast kingdoms of the world, and all their power and glory. And, of course, that's how they look to the world. Mm -hmm. That's how Rome looked. That's how Greece looked. That's how Babylon looked. That's how Assyria looked, and so forth and so on. In America. And, in yes, yes. So <laughs> what Satan is saying to Jesus is, all this is mine. It's been given to me. And that's an accurate statement. He won't get to keep it because it will come the day when Revelation chapter 11 Trumpet number seven sounds, and the cry goes out, Behold, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But as he offers here, it's legitimate. How many politicians have been shown that vision mm. and bought into it? And notice it's about worshiping Satan. It's about selling out. Sell your soul. Selling your soul. So this is an extraordinary condemnation of earthly politics under the control of Satan. So the longer... Uh Maybe it's uh, something to get into at a later time, but terms of office. Terms of office, yeah, that's uh, that's promote power. You don't want to hold on to power. Yeah. Term limitation would cut down power, and nobody who is in power wants to lose power. So yeah. that's, that hasn't happened. Yeah, you do an awful lot to keep it. Yeah, do an awful lot. So Satan's power is worldwide. But let's finish with the pervasive influence of the church, we who are Christians. We know that Satan has been defeated. 
in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, now, as he goes to the cross, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Absolutely. First John chapter 4, John tells the Christians to whom he writes, remember that greater uh, is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Mm. But that's not political power, people. That's spiritual power to serve and to be servants because if we don't serve, we can't reign with the Lord. We're saved to serve, resurrected to reign. So what's the um, practicality of this? Randy's going to read Matthew 5, a very famous passage about we being salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, notice that first of all, Jesus is talking about us, the church, being the light of the world, the salt of the world. Salt comes first because that preserves the world. That's what salt was used for basically in those days. It did make things taste better, but it, but it was a preservative. What holds culture together? The salt. We who are Christians. And then light then is shed abroad. And once we have our saltiness, the light illuminates the word that we have. Hmm. Uh, notice that this is not said anywhere in the Bible of the government. It's supposed to make sure we have law and order, as we saw last week. Regardless of the type of government. Regardless of the type of government it is. It's, it's held accountable to God to have law and order so people can live their lives out without fear. And regardless of who was voted for. And regardless of who was voted for. So, but uh, government, politics is never called to be salt and light. Culture, culture is what we're trying to affect. And notice that a little salt does a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, you only need a little, and a little light in a horribly dark room lights up a lot. Let's finish by talking about one thing for a minute. Sentiment. To me, this is very important. I've preached about this over the years. I don't know how many people I've convinced. It is more important that we Christians have the sentiment pervading culture of salt and light than we have laws, etc. Because that's what we're called to do. There's a saying that was uh, Andrew Breitbart is a fella, uh, and whatever you think about, about him, this was, to me, an accurate statement. He said, politics is downstream from culture. Mm. All right? Now, here is what Lincoln said, and those who know me know that I put Lincoln at the top of the list of all presidents, number one. In his first debate with Stephen Douglas back in uh, the late 1850s, he said this in a speech. Listen to this. In this age, in this country, public sentiment is everything. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. Whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces judicial decisions. Wow. Sentiment is everything, and that's what that passage from Matthew calls us to be. Salt and light at the grass level, the ground level, where people need it. Just think about the narratives that are run in our country, how they're run, and changes the culture, and then that changes the politics. We try to change politics from the top down, from the president, from, yes. from the government level down, as opposed to from the hearts of the people right. up. It's got to be changed from the bottom up. I'm old enough to remember back in the 50s that the narrative was still salt and light and good deal. Oddly enough, just yesterday, two days ago, I ran across an old bonanza 
the Western <laughs> series from the, started in the 1950s. They ended it with Wayne Newton standing the old rugged cross and somebody walked down the aisle. I oh, mean, well, yeah. that shows you the pervasiveness of the salt and light. It's disappeared from culture. So what can we say about the 117th Congress? Jesus says if salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer good. And it's just about ready to be thrown out and trodden under the feet of men. There's no saltiness there. Next week, part three, we're going to look at what it means to be a salty prophet, one who can bear testimony in the world of politics and make an impression when he brings light because he's salt with power. Well, thanks, Jim. And we have a lot to think about. And I'm sure that there are questions or comments on it. And we would love to hear those questions and comments from you. So please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment on air where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until the next time, keep looking up.